Well, hey, Harvest, good morning. Um, I know that you are home right now, but hopefully you aren't too comfortable because we have a lot to get into this morning. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles open, open them to Luke 7. We're going to be in the end of Luke 7 this morning, and uh, we're going to see a passage of Scripture that's very, very famous. Many of you probably heard it before, but so excited to jump in uh, for what God has for us. And uh, as you're turning to Luke 7, I want to start this morning off with asking a question. Um, if you're old enough, and maybe this will be a test of how old you are, um, do you remember where you were uh, during 9-11 when you first heard that New York had been uh, attacked and the planes had flown into the buildings? Do you remember where you were? I do. I, I think it's one of those things you just never really forget. But I was a sophomore in high school, and I was um, heading from first period to second period, and um, in the hallway, you could hear people talk. And, and people were saying, did you hear a plane flew into a building in New York? And I remember um, thinking to myself, like, why would that happen? Like, New York's huge. Obviously, um, planes should be avoiding th those tall buildings. But we thought it was a small plane. We thought it was an accident. So people were kind of talking. We knew there was a, a something was going on, but we didn't understand how serious it was. And uh, I got into second period, and we were in English class. And we were um, starting our class like normal. We were opening up our textbooks. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, our door burst open. And another teacher ran in with real panic in her voice. And she said, you have to turn on the TV right now. Another plane has flown into a building. We're under attack. And what I remember about that moment is just being jolted with, with, with kind of fear and anxiousness. Here's why. Because the fact that a door would just burst open in the middle of class was not normal. That got everyone's attention. But to hear the panic from an adult and, and hear the words, we're under attack. And I remember we instantly stopped what we were doing, turned on the TV in our classroom, and then for the next couple hours just kind of watched in stunned silence at, at what was going on. And uh, the reason I tell that story is we're going to look at a passage today where I think God's doing the equivalent of what that teacher did who burst into our classroom and, and said, hey, pay attention, something important is going on. God's going to give us a warning in this passage, and he's going to try to draw our hearts to say, hey, you need to wake up, you need to pay attention, there, there's something really important that you might be missing. And uh, what I'm hoping for and praying for this morning is that by looking at a passage that's so refreshingly simple, that God might um, do something in our hearts that, that's really, really massive this morning, I'm believing that. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to read the whole text. It's Luke 7, 36 through 50, and then we're going to break it down from there. So if you have your Bibles, follow along Luke 7, starting at verse 36. It says this, it says, One of the Pharisees asked, him, asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Look at verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. He, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, so here's what's going on in this story. Jesus is hanging out with the Pharisee. He gets invited over for dinner and he goes to the Pharisee's house and they're just hanging out, having a nice dinner. And a woman who the text calls a woman of the city, that means that she was a prostitute and she was definitely a a sinner by every category in those days. And she hears that Jesus is in town. She enters the party. She kind of breaks things up and she goes to Jesus and she starts weeping and and wiping his feet and kissing his feet and anointing him with oil. And and it kind of disrupts everything that's going on. And and Jesus and this Pharisee, they begin to devolve into a conversation. And what we're going to learn from this conversation, I think is just going to speak such a great deal to where our hearts are at right now this morning. So here's what I'm going to do. What I want to do is we're not going to look at it verse by verse how we usually do it. I want to break it down by character. So there's three characters in this story. There's the Pharisee, there's the woman, and there's Jesus. And we're just going to look at each of these characters and see what God is trying to communicate to us through these characters. So let's start with the Pharisee. Here's the first thing you need to understand about the Pharisee. His offer to Jesus fell short of honor. His offer fell short of honor. Look at verse 36. It says, And one of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. All right, so on the, the kind of the way you first look at it, this Pharisee, he's inviting Jesus over for dinner. And Jesus accepts. He, he goes and they hang out, and they're going to spend an evening together eating and talking. Okay, but here's what you need to understand. It was customary in those days that if you were going to invite a guest over, especially a guest of honor, um, when they came into the house, you would greet them with a kiss. You would give them a bowl of water and either wash your feet themselves or have a servant do it or allow the guest to wash his feet. And you would even give him oil or, or ointment to kind of put on his feet or on his hair as perfume. And what you were trying to do is you were trying to make them comfortable. And if you had a guest of honor coming over or even someone that you just wanted to show respect to, that was customary. And what we see is is the Pharisee did none of that. He invited Jesus over, but he didn't really extend to him any honor. Here's the best way I can describe it. Um, Imagine me inviting someone who I don't know very well over for the first time. And um, they come over and our house is a mess. There's toys everywhere. There's dirty dishes. Um, We're not cleaned up at all. And they say, hey, what are we having for dinner? And we're like, oh, we have no idea. We haven't even thought of it, right? Like that's maybe something you can get away with with your best friends when the relationship is casual. But for a guest of honor or or someone you don't know well, um, it's not something that you would do. The Pharisee is inviting Jesus over, but he's not showing him any honor. And church, look here. You need to understand this is something that we find ourselves guilty of all the time, isn't it? Like how often do we not give Jesus our absolute best? How often when we interact with Jesus, do we fall short of honoring him? How often do we set aside very, very little time or no time at all or our worst time to pray and to interact and to engage with Jesus? Right? We have to make sure everything else is done and then Jesus gets what's left over. Or maybe this, um, 
even thinking about preparing to meet with Jesus in church today. And I understand it's different. I understand the circumstances are unique, but here's a question. Did you set aside time last night or even earlier this morning to pray and to get your heart right and to repent of sin so that you can engage with Jesus without sin kind of interrupting or blocking your ability to worship? Did you set your sleep schedule around when church was to make sure that you were rested and had energy and could engage or was it the last thing on our minds? Church, it doesn't feel great to say this, um, but this is something that we are guilty of all the time, isn't it? And this isn't a moment for us to look down on the Pharisee, but it's a, a moment for us to acknowledge how often we approach Jesus in a similar way. And thankfully, there's another character that's gonna model something better for us. Here's the next thing we see about the Pharisee. It's this. Um, the Pharisee was blind to the condition of others. And um, I mean, just think about this scenario. The Pharisee's eating dinner with Jesus and all of a sudden a woman enters the room and she's sobbing. And as I read this passage over this week, one of the things that stuck out to me is you never see the Pharisee even address the woman or talk to the woman. He talks about the woman to Jesus. He has some thoughts about the woman that we hear that he is thinking to himself, but he never even engages with the woman. And isn't that wild? Like, uh, I just think this idea that someone enters the room and is sobbing. Like she is emotionally erect. Clearly there's something going on that's massive in her life and he doesn't even care to engage with the woman. He's concerned about his time with Jesus. He's concerned about his plans, his night, his evening. And uh, he's just so concerned about what he has going on that he's completely clueless to those that are suffering around him. Uh, just this week, our small group met together and we did a Zoom call together. And we spent some time just as couples going around and saying, all right, what's the one word that you would say that, that God's trying to teach you this season or show you in this season? And as all of the couples were going around, you know, so many of us, it's just a hard season. And we were talking about being overwhelmed with doing school virtually, or we were overwhelmed with managing work and family and the holidays coming up and everything that's going on there. And uh, one of the ladies in our small group said something that was so profound. And when it got to her turn, she said, you know what, the thing that my heart is really broken over is how many people have it so much worse than I do and are struggling much, much greater in this season. And she started to talk about single moms who can't manage school while working or people that are at high risk and, and are living in very real danger or fear over getting the virus or people that don't have the um, ability to, to meet their basic needs. And she just started going over these people that the Lord had just put on her heart. And it was such a good reminder, like so often we get stuck in our own heads, don't we? And we think about what we have going on. We think about our challenges. We think about all of the stresses in our life. And we can be consumed with ourselves just like this Pharisee. And it was really convicting that this Pharisee, the one who is a spiritual leader who should be dialed into the needs of others, missed this opportunity because he was blind to it, because he was consumed with what his plans were and what was going on in his life. Then here's the third thing we see about the Pharisee, and we're gonna have to park on this one for a little bit. It's this, the Pharisee was very comfortable being critical. He was very comfortable being critical. Look at verse 39, it says this, now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman who is touching him, for she is a sinner. 
And we see in this one sentence, the Pharisee kind of does a two for one. He criticizes Jesus and the woman in one fellow swoop. So, so the woman starts um, weeping at Jesus's feet and the Pharisee's first instinct is to be critical. And he's critical of Jesus. He's like, if he was really a prophet, if he was really a holy man, if he really loved the Lord, he would know who this woman is and he would want nothing to do with her because she is a sinner. She has forfeited her ability to be loved by God. Instantly, his heart is revealed as critical. And then even at the end of the meal, look down at verse 49. It says, And those who were at the table began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? So the end of the night, or at the end of the story, ends with them being critical of Jesus for forgiving the woman. So it begins critical, it ends critical, and there's just this comfort level of looking down and being critical of those around them. One of the things I'm becoming more and more convinced of, church, is how poisonous a critical spirit is to our hearts and our walk with the Lord. And here's why. I think when we become critical and we choose to live with a critical spirit, what that is is it's a symptom that we have forgotten who we are and what the Lord has done for us. We've forgotten the gospel. And here's the best way I can explain it. Um, when I was in high school, um, I was friends with a girl, and her name was Raquel. And uh, Raquel, she actually dated one of my best friends for a, a little bit. We went to school together for a couple years. We went to youth group together. And we, we hung out all the time. And, and, and Raquel, she had gotten saved as a freshman or sophomore in high school. So when we kind of first started hanging out, she was a, a new believer. And, and here's the thing I need you to know about Raquel. She was genuinely the kindest person I've ever met. She always had a good attitude. She would go out of her way to love the kids at school or at youth group that were difficult to love. And, and like in a um, environment in high school where being snide or being critical or having a bad attitude or gossip, like that's standard procedure, right? Um, she was not like that at all. You could not get her to say a mean word about anyone. You couldn't get her to get angry. You couldn't get her to, to, to just have a bad attitude. And like we would play games where it's like, all right, we're going to try to get Raquel angry and we would always lose. Like she just had this incredible attitude. And I remember one time I asked Raquel, like, all right, what's your secret? You're so different from everyone. How, how are you always able to maintain just this kind spirit and, and just to be so joyful? And she's like, Cal, it's easy. Before I met Christ, I was a disaster. And Jesus loved me and he saved me and I'm his child. And I wanna love other people like God has loved me. And listen, God's in control of everything. So what do I have to complain about? Doesn't matter what's going on with school. Doesn't matter what's going on with friends. I'm the Lord's and I have nothing to, to have a bad attitude about. And I just wanna share the love and joy of Jesus Christ. And I remember in that moment, um, it just was so profound. Here's why. Because she was allowing the gospel to shape her outlook on life. She's like, God saved me. I can be joyful. God loves me. I can love others. It was that simple. But by the way, it stood the test of time. And so I want to ask us the question, especially in a difficult year like 2020, um, maybe one of the things God's revealing to us is how quickly we're, we are to run to a critical spirit. Like, can I ask you this question? How has your heart been towards others and those around you this year? Has your heart grown critical? 
right? I've talked to so many Christians and they're like, you know what, Cal, the hardest part about 2020, it's not the virus and it's not the restrictions. It's seeing how upset and angry and critical everyone is towards each other. And whether that's online or in person or, or people fighting, like it, it's really, really difficult to see the critical heart revealed in so many of us. And maybe it's a critical spirit towards government. Whether that's what the decisions they've made or elections or what they've done, have you been quick to be critical towards those in authority over you? Maybe it's critical of schools and staying open or shutting down or how they've navigated masks or no masks or part virtual, part home, part in person. It's hard. Have you grown critical? Maybe you've grown critical of how churches have handled things and whether to stay open or to stay closed and what to allow and and how to proceed. Um, Has your heart grown critical? Critical of your workplace and and the rules and regulations. You know, you critical of the Zoom meetings because you're just over it. Here's one. As we enter the holiday season now, is it easy to get critical about those in your family or those in your life who, um, how they're navigating all of this and who they're meeting with and who they're not meeting with and how they're choosing to celebrate Thanksgiving or how they're not choosing to celebrate Thanksgiving? Are, are you quick to look down and criticize others either outwardly or just in your heart? You know, one of the interesting things is the Pharisee, when he was critical of Jesus and the woman, he never said it out loud. But Jesus still knew it was happening and addressed it. This Pharisee was critical inwardly. The Bible has a different word for a critical spirit. The Bible calls it judging others. And in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, we read this. Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do not see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The Pharisee in this text, he was a professional at pointing out flaws or or things he disagreed with in Jesus and in the woman. He was a professional at being critical, but he was blind to what was going on in his own heart and what he was missing. And and church, I'm just going to say this, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit give some room to work right now and maybe convict us a little bit. Um, When we choose to live with the critical spirit of others, we are aligning ourselves with the Pharisee in this passage. There's no way around it. The Pharisee was very, very comfortable with being critical, and it was a poison to his own heart. All right, now I want to look at the next character, and that's this. It's the woman. And uh, the woman, um, she gives us some hope in this text. Here's the first thing about the woman I want you to see, is that she wouldn't be stopped by shame or reputation. She wouldn't be stopped by shame or reputation. Like, I want you to think of this. Like, how bold was this move for this woman to enter the Pharisee's house in this moment? Like, if you think about it, aren't there a million of reasons for her not to do what she did? Right, what happens if I get arrested? What happens if I get beat up? What happens if the Pharisee rejects me? What happens if Jesus wants nothing to do with me? What happens if a big scene happens or I get shouted at? What happens if I get made fun of? Like There was so many reasons for her not to do what she did. But what you need to understand is for for the woman, the formula was very simple. It was this, I'm in trouble. I'm in a bad spot. There's a lot in my life that isn't right but I've heard that the Messiah is here and he has the ability to forgive sins. 
I need to get to Jesus. It was that simple. What do I have to do to get to the feet of Jesus? And I'm going to let the other chips fall where they may. And what I love is she didn't allow the shame of her sin to keep her from getting to Jesus. In church, she knew that the remedy for her issue was Jesus. And the remedy for our sin and our shame today is still Jesus. And I know I've said this a ton, but I think so often we are so hesitant to move away from God and move away from Jesus because when we look at our lives, we see so much sin and hypocrisy and shame. And we allow the shame to move us away from God rather than running to him and saying, God, I know you love and I know you forgive and I know you're the only remedy for sin. You're the only thing that can heal my heart. God, I need you in this moment. You see, when we understand God's love for us and that forgiveness is a gift and God forgives over and over and over again, our sin should cause us to run to the healer, not run away, causing us to become even more sick. His love and disposition towards her and towards us is unchanging. Nothing would stop this woman. Here's the next thing I love. Um, I love how she reads the room perfectly. She reads the room perfectly. She knows when she enters the house, she's going to take some criticism. And um, she doesn't care. She knows where Jesus is. And she's like, I've got to get to Jesus right now. Look at verse 38. It says, And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And here's a contrast that God's word is making from the woman to the Pharisee. You see, the woman gave her absolute best. It said that Jesus' feet, they hadn't been washed, so they were dirty. So she wetted them with her tears and then wiped them with her hair like she was having her physical appearance suffer for the sake of cleaning Jesus' feet. And it says that the woman that before she went and saw Jesus, she grabbed an alabaster of ointment and she poured that on Jesus's feet. And here's what you need to understand. A, A prostitute living in that time, she would not have been a wealthy woman. Most likely she went and grabbed the most valuable thing that she owned. And she's like, I've got to give this to Jesus. And she pours the whole thing on him to show him honor. And she is weeping and crying and kissing his feet. And what I love about this woman is she just gets it. She gets who the most important person in that room is. She gets who she needs. She gets the value of this moment with Jesus. There's nothing lost on her. Then here's the third thing that I love about this woman. It's this. Um, She models true brokenness. She models true brokenness. This moment where she is at Jesus' feet. And she's kissing them and she's crying and she's drying his feet with her hair and and, and she's anointing him with oil. This is what Bible scholars, many of them, they call it the um, perfect coming together of humility, repentance, worship, and love. You see all of it in this moment. She gets low. She's humble. She's repenting. She's weeping over her sin. She is uh, adoring Jesus. She's worshiping him and she is loving him well, as Jesus will point out later. You know, it's interesting. We never hear the woman say a word. We don't know her story. We don't know how she got in this place. We see a woman who in every way is unworthy of the love of Jesus Christ, but she is broken over her sin and Jesus responds so lovingly to her. You know, it's funny, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. 
and, and a couple chapters later, we see this happening in the moment. She is at a place of brokenness. There is a stark contrast between where this woman's at and where the Pharisee was. And what I need you to understand is um, brokenness, it's more than just hating your sin. It's more than just feeling bad about your sin. When we're truly broken over our sin, we have that feeling of hate of our sin. But what we do is, is we also move towards the one who can forgive. And she's doing all of that in this moment. It is truly the perfect model of brokenness and repentance. Okay, now I want to move our attention to the most important person in the room, and that's Jesus. And here's what we see about Jesus in this text. The first thing is amazing. I love this. Um, the first thing you need to see is that he was equally there for both. And, and if you take notes in your Bible, look at verse 41. When explaining what Jesus is doing to the Pharisee, he says this. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And if you take notes in your Bible, I want you to circle that phrase, two debtors. Right, right. There, there's a really important word there. And, and Jesus, in his analogy, he, he uses two debtors rather than one. He could have said, hey, there's only one debtor and he owed a great price and the lender forgave it. And, and shouldn't that person love the lender? Like he could have told the analogy that way, but he does something different. He says, no, no there's two. One owes a ton. One doesn't owe, owe as much, but neither of them have the ability to pay. And what Jesus is doing is, is he's trying to draw in the heart of the Pharisee. He says, your eye is on this girl who's a sinner who has great sin, but there's two sinners in the room. Neither of them can pay their debt, and, and the money or the um, collector is offering to forgive both. He's trying to woo the Pharisee's heart and to get him to see his position of need before Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. The religious needs Jesus. The lost needs Jesus and everyone in between. And I love that in this moment, Jesus wasn't only focused on the woman, but he was also focused on the heart of the Pharisee trying to win him over to repentance. Here's the next thing we see um, is that Jesus operates under a different economy. Jesus operates under a different economy. You know, it's interesting when the Pharisee sees the woman, he calls her a sinner. And so the Pharisees' economy is this. There are righteous people, there are good people, and there are bad people, and there are sinners. And for the Pharisee, it was easy. It's like, listen, I'm righteous, I'm good, I keep the law, I do everything I'm supposed to. That woman is a sinner. We should have nothing to do with her. But Jesus flips the script. He doesn't call them sinners or, or, or righteous. He calls them debtors. And he does this again in Matthew 18 when he talks about the parable of the unforgiving ser servant. This is a common way Jesus refers to our sin, not as sinners, but as an unpayable debt. And what he's trying to do is he's saying, listen, if it's about our sin, we can compare our sin against one another. And this person has sinned more or this person has sinned less and I'm doing better than this person or worse than that person. But when you view it through the lens of an unpayable debt, everyone's got the same problem. It doesn't matter if I owe 1,000 or 500 or 50. If I can't pay it back, I'm in trouble. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to say, listen, you're not better off at this person. You have your own debt that you can't pay. His economy is different. And what Jesus is communicating is you're never going to truly love God until you understand the debt that you owe that has been forgiven. As long as you view yourself as the righteous, 
or the one that doesn't have much to, to owe to God. Like this Pharisee didn't think he owed Jesus anything. And Jesus is like, you're never going to love well until you understand what's been done for you. He's operating by a different economy. He's changing the script. Then here's the last thing I want you to see about Jesus. It's this. It's that his opinion is the only one that matters. His opinion is the only one that matters. Look at verse 48. It says, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, imagine being the woman in that moment. Right, you've entered this house and, and you've gone to Jesus's feet. You've wept. You, you've kind of embarrassed yourself, maybe made, made a scene. But in one moment, Jesus absolutely changed everything about her life. He said, you are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Like in that moment, I don't think the woman cared about what the Pharisees thought. In that moment, I don't think she cared about her reputation. In that moment, I don't think she cared that there was a crowd of people kind of murmuring amongst themselves. Like, who is Jesus that, that, that can say these things? In that moment, everything about her life was dramatically different. Because in that moment, she met Jesus. And in that moment, she received the only thing she needed, and that was forgiveness. And Jesus was the only one who can give that. And church, the same is true for us. Like, listen, at the end of the day, there's one person's opinion who matters, and that's Jesus. And you and I are going to find ourselves standing before Jesus one day, and the only thing that's going to be important is, did we love Jesus well? Are we forgiven? That's it. And in that moment, it's not going to matter how much money we had, how many friends we had, what our reputation was, what others thought of us, how successful we were at our workplace. We are living for the opinion of one person. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, even right now in your home, say, I believe that. Because if that's true, it should shape everything about our lives. You see a woman who didn't have much of anything together in her life leave with everything and then you see a man who had power and reputation and friends and resources just miss it and leave with nothing. And that leaves me to my big question, which is how I want to close this morning. It's this. I think we need to ask ourselves the question, am I comfortable with simply inviting Jesus into my home or am I desperate to have him in my heart? I'm just going to let that, that question sit there for a minute. Am I comfortable with simply inviting Jesus into my home or am I desperate to have him in my heart? The, the Pharisee invited Jesus over, but at the end of the day, he did not love Jesus. He did not honor Jesus. And there was no desperation in his heart at all for Jesus. You know, Hebrews tells us that there's this warning that we're given that says this, it's possible to experience the things of God. It's possible to go to church. It's possible to feel the Spirit move in our life. It's possible to be around the Holy Spirit, but to ultimately walk away from it and reject it because ultimately we don't love Jesus and we don't give him our best and don't honor him. Listen, we're not going to be perfect, but here's the good news. This woman wasn't perfect. There was a lot in this woman's life that, that I think you could argue she didn't have together, but she got the most important thing right, and that was her disposition towards Jesus. She was desperate, desperate for forgiveness, desperate for love, desperate to honor her Lord and Savior. 
And as I've kind of wrestled with this passage this week, church, here's the thing that I think sticks out most. I think so often our desperation for Jesus is so circumstantial and it's dependent on what we're going through, right? And when there's a marriage crisis or a health crisis or a crisis with our kids or a job crisis, then we up our desperation because the circumstances demand it. You know, even around um, seeing what's going on in our country or the elections, I, I see people, hey, we need to seek the Lord and we need to fast and we need to pray and we need to be more desperate because our circumstances are desperate. And I think where we get it wrong is, I think if we could see things from God's perspective, I think the thing he would tell us is, listen, there's never a second in our life where we shouldn't be all out desperate for Jesus. Not only is he our savior, but he is our sustainer. He is holding the universe together by the word of his power. And the thing that has stuck out in my heart so significantly is just this. Um, Do I have this desperation modeled by the woman? Or is my desperation circumstantial? Or have I gotten too comfortable? And is my life lacking the right amount of honor that Jesus deserves? Which person, which character does our story align with? And maybe this week in small group or as you even talk with your family right now, we can ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to foster an increased desperation for our King? Let's pray. Dearly Father, God, I thank you for this time. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to teach it. And God, I know that you're moving because you are in control of all things and your ways are good. And God, I just pray for soft hearts. I pray for just eager spirits. God, I pray that we would be a people who know you, who love you, and who are desperate for your presence and your forgiveness. God, you are so kind to us. You are so powerful. You're amazing. Um, Let us not grow weary or bored of these truths, which change literally everything in our world and in our lives. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.